0: Here we go. Rejecting the screen, the going ISO edition, as we do every Thursday here on the podcast. Noah Kozlov out east, Adam Stenko is out west. The going ISO edition means we're going long form with a guest that touches basketball in any number of ways. And today it's Coach Nick, Nick Houselman. You know him from B-Ball Breakdown on Twitter. You know his videos on YouTube, the B-Ball Breakdown. And also he's got a new podcast, a political podcast, the Muckrake podcast. But coach, we're talking hoops, and we're going to start with this. In response to your YouTube videos or just tweets in general, do you get more? Man, that was great! Or, dude, you're an idiot. Oh, that's a great question. So uh, we're talking about strictly on Twitter. Sure, or even right? in. So so start with Twitter, and then go to maybe YouTube comments. Okay. Um, So, you know, Twitter,
1: let's see, it's kind of divided because if I do a video, generally the response is really, really positive anywhere, both on the comments and YouTube and on Twitter. When I do my analysis during the game, that's when it seems like I I get more people upset at me. Um, And and probably rightfully so because it's in the heat of the moment and I'm actually quickly trying to get this stuff out and, you know, might be missing things as well. So, uh, but I think overall, as far as the the videos themselves, uh, it's overwhelmingly positive um, from from that standpoint.
2: Nick, before we get back to the the beginning and how you got this whole thing started, you you just mentioned the idea that during the course of games, you're you're putting stuff out there on Twitter and things you're seeing. And look, NBA Twitter, it's it's the bane of. Noah and Mind's existence right now, um, just how people can be. But I am curious, from your perspective, as a guy that breaks things down from an from an analyst perspective, what kinds of things do you see when you're breaking down the tape after you've watched it a couple times that you're typically not seeing live?
1: Ah, well, that's a that's a really good question. I mean, because when I watch it live, it's funny. I'm on my TiVo, and I spend more time jumping back ten seconds during live games. Than probably anybody else does and i drive people who i watch the games with crazy because i like to do that so i'm doing a lot of it during the game but when i re-watch it again you know there's so many subtle nuances about like what the adjustments are who's guarding who i think that's the one that big one that catches my eye what are the matchups how are the how are the coaches deciding to guard certain guys like for instance when the bucks beat the lakers you know, they threw out Wes Matthews on LeBron James, and that seemed pretty novel. And I was, I was expecting something different because Budenholzer tends to do that. And so, uh, you know, those are the things that really catch my eye. Also, the pairings, of the pick and roll, who is, you know, the ball screener, who is the ball handler. And uh, those are the things that always kind of, you know, are easier to see much, you know, after the fact, when you kind of start to chart those things afterwards, and then realize, you know, what's working, what's not.
0: What is your note-taking process?
1: Ah, well, I mean, it depends. Sometimes, like I'll do, I uh, just did a video on the Toronto Raptors
0: doing a, uh, a
1: a novel full court press to get back in the game and win it. So you know, I, I have a either I'll have a spreadsheet open sometimes, or I'll just do a regular text edit uh, app, and I'll just sort of you know list it each possession, but by possession, a we'll little description of each, add up what happened uh, as a result uh, for the points or you know, the turnovers, or whatever, generate a points per possession. Sometimes out of that to see if it's really working, because sometimes. You know, in theory, you know, with a press like that, you know, it looked good on a couple possessions. But, you know, then the Mavericks broke it on a couple possessions. So it might not have, you know, really been that effective. So I try and look at that narrative to make sure that that really was what turned the game around, for instance. In that case, it did.
0: You know,
2: Nick, one of people's big uh, easy responses to anything you put out there, or for that matter, Noah or I, uh, is, oh, who's this guy? What's he know anyway? um, So, so let's go back to the beginning and, and um, you know, your background in basketball and, and uh, how this whole thing came to be.
1: Okay. Well, let's see here in the beginning, you know, I played basketball. I was on a really good high school team with a couple D1 level players. Uh, I was going to play D3, ended up visiting Wisconsin and fell in love with it. My mom had gone there. And uh, so I ended up being a basketball manager there. And that's really where I learned, a lot of where, you know, how the coaching stuff works for two years, I got to observe Stu Jackson, who was a Knicks coach and Vancouver Grizzlies uh, executive. And, um, and then Dan Van Gundy was an assistant on that team. Uh, Sean Miller was an assistant on that team. So, you know, I was that guy who wouldn't just sort of stand around with a ball and a towel and just sort of blank out and not pay attention. I really tried to focus on what the coaches were doing from a communication standpoint and then the X's and O's. So uh, that's where I got my, you know, cut my teeth originally to really learn how like a major basketball program operates. And then from there, I coached at uh, my old high school. I actually coached my old grammar school, uh, you know, uh, fifth and sixth graders and then or seventh graders. And then I went to my old high school and coached the ninth grade team and, uh, and then slowly developed some, some, some philosophy from there because I had, still didn't really know exactly what and how I really wanted to coach. And then let's see here. I got to Los Angeles. Started teaching, and then I, I, I met my one of my my greatest mentors, who ran a program uh, in the valley in L.A. in a big high school, and uh, so I, I was his assistant, and that's really where I learned a lot of the defensive principles that really solidified how I, I want to coach today, and I did that for four years. We took over actually when he retired before the, uh, the last that last season, uh, four years in, and uh, was like I was the co-head coach of the varsity, and then I took some time off, and then I came back. Um, Let's see here. I came back to coach that same high school as the head coach for three years. And um, that's, uh, again, that, the, the biggest uh, change I wanted to do there was I had felt like I knew the X's and O's really well or well enough that you know, my teams would execute those things. What I wanted to do was elevate my communication skills and the motivational skills and the, the psychology of basketball. So I spent a lot of time and effort just reaching out to as many people as I could on that front. And when I started B-Ball Breakdown, I started it about six months before I took the head coaching job in the high school. So I already had a head start with like a lot of great contacts there. And so I was able to kind of experiment and hone those skills as well over those three years. And, um, you know, but, but to, not to make this too much of a long answer, uh, there's no question when I started B-Ball Breakdown, I actually wasn't a head coach yet uh, at the high school level. So there was no question I got, who the hell are you? What do you know? And then when they found out I was a head coach of a high school, then they would say, you are a high school coach. You don't know anything compared to anybody <laughs> else at every other level above that. And I used to sort of ask them, I said, well, do you think that there's some sort of a Pandora's box of, uh, of information that you only get when you get hired by an NBA team and that nobody else can learn this stuff? And they right. usually shut them up. But uh, I, I dealt with that for several years.
0: Did you have any desires at some point to, to move up and be on a college staff or work for an NBA team? Great question.
1: So all the managers that I worked with, or a lot of those guys, a lot of my other friends who were managers other team, uh, at other colleges and stuff, you know, they led a very nomadic life where they would go from city to city every couple of years, they could have been the best assistant, the best grad assistant, the best video coordinator in the world. And if their boss gets fired, they get fired. And it was really a, a, an experience I don't think I ever really gravitated toward. I never really wanted to live that way. So I actually focused on, on working on films and commercials. I was writing screenplays, and I kind of um, ignored the passion I had for basketball for a long time um out of college so but but part of that motivation i think was i just didn't want to do what they had to do i just like being my own boss also and i've assisted other coaches who i didn't really agree with what they did and it's one of the most difficult things i have ever had to do so um you know it's just really a difficult situation where i I just didn't i know i i knew i didn't want to do that and have to travel from town to town and like be beholden to you know the some of the whims of some other you know athletic director at some random school What's
2: the first video you did that really took off?
1: Oh my goodness, it's a great question. I, you know, I, I've done almost two thousand, um, but wow. I have to imagine when when it really started hitting. I mean, listen, you can, you can say wow, but it's I, I've been doing it for that long. That's how old I am. So <laughs> <laughs> it's not even like you know that impressive. But um, I, I think the one that kind of really captured the imagination was. Uh, At the end of, um, let's see, it was uh, Kyrie Irving's rookie year, I was going through a lot of synergy stats at the time, and I kept seeing another name popping up above him and all these ratings for every different version of pick and roll and spot up and uh, and ISO, and it was Isaiah Thomas. And at that time, he was nobody. Nobody knew what he was doing over in Sacramento. Uh, They hadn't been playing well at all. And um, so I did a video that sort of made that question, like, is Isaiah Thomas, the Kings point guard, better than Kyrie Irving? And uh, that caused a really big splash Uh, because you have to remember uh, Kyrie was number one pick and uh, Isaiah was number 60 pick. So it was almost this nice, you know, bookended um, poetry there. And um, anyway, I think I was ended up being proven pretty right as far as when Isaiah Thomas got healthy and did what he did in Boston. But I got to tell you, man, everybody weighed in. I had people trying to discredit me and going back and like trying to examine my high school coaching uh, and all sorts of stuff. And uh, Kyrie weighed in on Twitter, Isaiah weighed in on Twitter on it. So that was cool. That was the first time we noticed. I'm like, wow, people are actually watching these things. So I think that was probably the start of it.
0: Yeah. So I just looked at that video from six years ago and it's 275,000 views. What do you consider successful now when it comes to views? Uh,
1: That's a good question. I mean, you know, I I used to remember, I can remember the time I'm like, God, if I could just get 20,000 views, right? If I could just get 10,000 subscribers, it's like hard to remember sometimes way back when, but I can kind of remember those feelings. Uh, 100,000 views was like, oh my God, the holy grail. If we could ever get there, that would be amazing. And, you know, that, that's, I'm at that now. I mean, I'm kind of surprised if it doesn't nail like 150 at this point. And I've had to play with all these different kinds of, um, uh, different kinds of uh, content. So when I used to do game breakdowns, they would, they would get old really fast, right? No one would want to watch a Lakers-Bucks game when the Lakers are playing, you know, a day and a half later. But even those, because I've grown the channel big enough, even the game breakdowns now, after I've been able to build an audience, uh, those are still going to nail 150, 200 anyway, so is great. And uh, so, yeah, if I, don't, if I don't hit that 150 mark, I kind of start looking at it going, well, you know, let's adjust what we're doing on that one because it's not working.
0: You said during that, that Isaiah Kyrie thing that, that Kyrie had interacted with the video also. How often are players commenting on what you post? And I'd say part two to that question is how many of them are actually watching the video versus just seeing what the, you know, the title or your description of the video is?
1: Uh, well i can't divulge i don't want to divulge too much cause i i i here's what i can tell you as far as like from my uh from my experiences a lot of people across the league watch these videos and from the coaching staff to ownership to gms to players um so i mean i was just at a practice several weeks ago uh you know covering a shoot around and one of the players you know comes running up to me like hey coach nick i've been watching your channel and, and the cool thing about that is is any of these guys who are like 20 or 21 they were 13 when they probably could have first seen one of my videos. Right. Mm -hmm. So going forward, all these young up and coming like stars, you know, most likely would have seen some of my videos. And so I'm walking in there now. And so that's really, really cool. I I was walking off like five feet above the ground the rest of that day when I told me that and and I was a big fan of this guy's game. So it was like really kind of neat to kind of share that. So, um, so, you know, they're out there. I mean, you know, every once in a while I'll hear, you know, back from someone who's upset with what I do and, uh, and it's funny because if I can, I'm not going to feel bad if an NBA player reaches out to me to tell me that he's mad about a video I did, because all I'm thinking about is, oh, my God, this guy is watching my videos. This is amazing. Like, I, and I'm sorry that you're <laughs> upset and I can do better. But like, you're not going to really make me feel bad <laughs> about this, uh, you know, because. You know, it's just like what at any other time in this in the in the history of the of our of the NBA, like you you'd never be able to do this. I would have had to have either worked for ESPN or maybe the local you know Comcast or whatever, uh, you know, or that was it. There was no other ability to do any kind of uh, you know coverage of the stuff. So it's just incredible where we live, and it's it's lucky that we did this. I kind of wish I was younger even just because it's like I'm getting in there at the tail end of where my my age is, but uh, I'm hanging on by, you know, for your life on that one.
2: It's, it's funny you bring all this up because I got a taste of what you dealt with on such a minor level. About a month ago, Nick, I was uh, – I, I put out a video. I just retweeted a video about Nico Mannion making this sweet pass, and I was talking about – I mentioned how he passed – where the defenders weren't, and he saw that they weren't watching uh the cutter basically on the break. And he he saw this that the defenders weren't watching the pass, and then he passed where they where they weren't, passed away from the defense, which I said was an old Bobby Knight adage. And uh um Kyle Anderson ended up like commenting on the video and saying, or, you know, he's like, oh, he was wide open. Like basically like you're giving this kid way too much credit now. And it was funny how the every, all the comments prior to that were positive and everybody was like wow check this out Nico Mannion's so good and then it turned into very quickly oh this guy's an idiot to put this out there cuz Kyle Anderson said he's an idiot so um i can i can see what you're going go what you what you deal with um but aside from just talking about me i did want to uh <laughs> i did i did want to ask you a, a question and that is how do you decide what is going to be interesting for the viewer and I preface that by saying, I know there's stuff that must interest you. And then there's stuff that you may think, you know, other people might have interest in. But how do you finally make the decision of this is what I'm going to put out there?
1: Uh, you know, I battle the demons of like, you know, what people say I should be doing versus what I want to do. And I, it, all I can tell you is that whenever I've done a video like that, where it's like, you should be doing the top five dunks of the night or whatever, that kind of thing and whenever everyone suggested those kind of things it's like in my mind yeah I, that would probably do it really really well but it's just not, not something i'm interested in doing so as a result i think the video would suffer now i am doing every saturday uh, a really cool recap of all the Friday friday night games but i'm doing it where it's not just a highlight i'm explaining the x's and o's behind the highlights so there is like a final way for me to kind of weasel my way into that genre and i get to have a lot of fun because I don't watch – does anybody here even watch, like, SportsCenter much anymore? No offense to, like, Goddamn Pellet, because I love him. But I just don't feel like it's a happening where – I remember when I was dating my wife back, you know, in the late 90s, we would we both sit on the couch and watch SportsCenter. Does anybody even do that anymore?
2: Not the same way.
1: And here's the reason why I bring it up. Because I was raised on Chris Berman. And so the way Chris Berman did it, or even, you know, and then it's Stuart Scott – like the, the ones I'm doing now on Saturday, like I'm really having a lot of fun. I'm like having fun with all the different names and I'm doing all sorts of fun little you know cultural references. And the cool thing is people are actually digging it. That said, it's not getting as many views <laughs> as a lot of my other videos, but I love it. I love doing it. It's really fun. And I have a feeling I can kind of educate my audience and sort of train them to like it and get more views as we go forward. But as far as it goes, it's like it does have to capture some, you know, it has to capture my interest a lot for me to be willing to spend four, five, six, seven hours at a time to do these things. Um, and a lot of times, like there have been times I've spent a whole day, like I'm going to prove that Kyrie Irving was the reason why the Celtics really underachieved last year. And I spent over a day going through uh, like probably a thousand clips, and I simply couldn't find any sort of tangible evidence that would prove it. He had a great season when he was out there on the floor, you know what I mean? So it's like you can talk all about the locker room and stuff, but I got I need visuals. And so there are times when I'll, I'll pull the plug after hours, and it's really frustrating. But unless it's working and unless it's captured me enough, I just I won't do it.
0: Well, here's a visual for Kyrie. He was not on the bench. You actually couldn't visually, you couldn't see him on the bench during game seven against the Cavaliers because he had that emergency deviated septum nonsense surgery that doesn't exist. So he wasn't there. And that's the visual that all you need to know about why the Celtics season right. failed because Kyrie wasn't there. <laughs> so, so you said you have a lot of fun doing those videos. That's a hobby doing I mean, if you're just doing those other, those other videos that you were just talking about, doing the highlight videos, that's a hobby. This, is, this has become a big business. When did it become a business? Ah, okay. Well, let's see here. I mean, you know, uh,
1: when did it become a business? I suppose I started doing it full-time, like, and I, I was coaching and doing both, and at some point, it was kind of becoming untenable to really do both well. So um, I would say, you know, back, I, I, I mean, I really started doing it full-time, then to answer part of that question would be like 2013 uh, is when I really devoted to it. And that's when I saw the big explosion where it really started to take off which is because I was just doing it every day and I was out there on Twitter every day and covering games. So I would say that was what, that's 2013. It's now almost, you know, almost seven years ago uh, when that happened. So that's probably the best, you know, uh, ground zero to point to.
0: So how did you know that, uh, so you obviously it's, it's taking your time to make it a business, but, Like that's early in a YouTube business. Now you know there 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 are a lot of people making, or at least I shouldn't say a lot of people making money on YouTube, but there are people making a ton of money on YouTube. How how are you navigating the YouTube business?
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, obviously you can you know if you understand how the business works, you know the more views you get, the more money you make because you get a share of the ads that that YouTube is serving. Um, I will say this um you know i was going along with going okay i was making some you know some money decent but it probably wasn't enough to to, uh, to justify how many hours i was working on it but i was building but um i think one of the big things that really ignited the business part of it was when um we we started looking at the views and i was i was putting some ads in myself right everyone knows on youtube that you do you know these these libraries or these, uh, integra- these integrations these uh, product placement stuff so what I was trying to do was um, is, is put those in the front, thinking, well, you know, that's where it needs to go. It's prime real estate Everyone should see it. But we were losing so much of the audience the first 30 seconds of the video that the solution was to put it in the middle and make it seamless. And I have, you know, a comedy writing background, a comedy, you know, uh, you know improv background. So I was able to use a lot of sort of those skills to make them funny as well. And so I went from F you, stop putting these damn ads, we already got one from YouTube, to putting another one in there, you know, I'm, I'm gonna unsubscribe. It went from that to, oh my God, I just come to see how you're gonna put the ad in. <laughs> like, I don't even care yeah. about the video. And so, and then, and we saw just a skyrocketing of, of uh you know, I, I don't, it's it's usually been about a 45 degree angle of growth year over year, but every once in a while, and this is one of those times when we finally got some, you know, over you know several months, a big upshoot in uh, in in views and subscribers and and business because once we did that and when we were able to use that it, the this seamless integration of those ads, it just changed the ball game and I, and now like that, that was the greatest part about it was that people were actually like sort of happy to see those ads and now are they're they're associating positive thoughts with that product, for instance. And uh, that's been huge. You
2: know, Nick, people talk about the idea of writing the book that, that you want to read. So when you were first starting out, what was missing in the marketplace that sort of gave you the, the reason for doing this?
1: Ah, well, you remember that uh, epic seven-game series between the Celtics and the Bulls when Derrick Rose was a rookie, I believe? And um, that was, the, that was the, uh, the big three in Boston. That was the series. It was it was seven games. Vinny Del Negro was coaching the Bulls, and um, anyway, everyone was freaking out about it. This is I think this is 2009, the the spring, and I was watching it, and like I think Ray Allen was averaging like 63 points a game, something crazy like that, because the defense was so bad on him. And I know that it was epic, it was amazing, but it was also a lot of bad basketball being played. And no one was pointing it out. And I don't want to be the, you know, uh, was it Debbie Downer or Doug and Wendy Weiner? We're one of those people. But, um, but it was like, yes, you know, this, yes. really the, this really isn't the best basketball that could be played. And and I wanted to recognize that it was epic, and certainly because it did go to seven. But so so no one was sort of commenting on what was really happening on the floor. So when I was starting to look around back then, like early 2010 or maybe end like of 2009, and wanted to do a YouTube channel, uh, I think even my dad might have been the guy to suggest it. He was just like, "Well, why don't you try and do something on the NBA?" And, and then I was like, "Ah, that reminded me from that series." And it kind of took off right right away from there. At least the idea made sense, and it it certainly was a voice that we still don't even see too much more of anybody else on YouTube doing what I do, which is nice for me. But um, you know, it really became a unique thing that people gravitated toward pretty quickly.
0: But but we are seeing a lot of twitter coaches so not with the not with the video to support it like you're doing just simply writing text as if everybody's watching the same game that they're watching or you know they're just trying to reach the audience of, of whatever game that they're watching what do you what do you make of that
1: so I, that's how i used to do it i didn't understand twitter for a long time i i signed up probably around the time i started my channel in 2010 and i didn't do anything for it for, with it for a while probably like a year and then i started doing just exactly that and you're right i, I after like maybe a, a season of that i realized it's like it's not i don't know if any a i don't know if anyone is watching at the same exact time i am and then b it, it's a visual thing and if you're not providing visuals then it really doesn't mean much and, and i didn't get that much traction back then so what i started doing was you know taking my phone and, and, and when i realized oh wait you could put a video on these tweets and that might have even been Maybe you couldn't even have done that until 2011. I don't even remember, but I started putting the video, right? I think it had to be like six seconds or less for it to loop. There was mm-hmm. all these weird things back then. And um, and then I would put the, the, the text analysis alongside that. When I started doing that back then, I had a five-year run or whatever where I was just shooting ducks in a barrel. I mean, they would get hundreds of reach weeks, hundreds of likes, you know, and more. I get millions of interactions every night when I, in a couple hours. <clears throat> and. Um, that was amazing. And I built up my Twitter following pretty big. I got to tell you right now, it's, it's nowhere near what it used to be. It's not like a ghost town, but it's completely radically changed. And I, I have to be honest, I haven't quite figured out what I need to do to pivot to try and get back to what I did. I'm not sure I ever will be because I feel like Twitter's just a different platform now, but it's not the same. I, have you guys felt that way when you're watching games and on Twitter?
0: Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I find myself staying off Twitter more when watching games. More so because I just want to be able to enjoy the game myself, make my own conclusions, that kind of thing, and then maybe later on go back and see if I missed some certain things. But you can't, you can't actually watch a game and be scrolling your Twitter feed at the same time. Especially maybe sometimes I'm trying to keep an eye on two games at once. And do I really care when one person I follow says great screen and roll there? No, I, do, I, I and, don't. I can I can see that.
2: And no, I'll play off that and say too that. It used to be, it felt like more of an organic conversation between like exactly what you're talking about, Nick, the things that you used to do and you're making comments and people are engaging and going back and forth. There's obviously more users now, but there's also this whole sect of, well, now there's all these famous people on there and there's comedians. And then there's all this, these corporate entities that are on. And I think they've sort of, you know, oversaturated. So there's not a conversation. It used to feel like, this natural, like, ongoing message board where people are making jokes and going back and forth and having insight. And now all the interesting people, it's harder to find their comments in between all the other stuff you have to deal with, I think.
1: That's interesting. And it also goes to the elephant in the room, which I don't know if you guys want to talk about. But, you know, the ratings are down. And I don't know about you, but, like, I don't know anybody else who's into basketball as much as I am. And I'm having a really difficult time watching NBA at night. And, I, and I'm, I'm not even I can put my finger on it exactly. Even last night, I'm on vacation. We're hanging out. The Lakers game's on. And I'm just like, you know, after about five minutes, I'm sort of distracted. I'm starting to do other things. And I have to imagine a lot of people are feeling that way. Um, and I think that that has to do, have to do with what, you know, what's going on as far as the, the, the interest and all those different things. And it doesn't feel like it's the typical, you know, we're still in the NFL season. It's before Christmas. It doesn't feel that way. It, you know what I mean? It definitely feels like there's something going on with the game itself that we are battling. And
0: uh, it's losing eyeballs. So, so it was the game itself that turned you off. You said you, you were watching and, and a few minutes later you were distracted. It was, it was something else that was happening on vacation or is the game itself couldn't keep your no. interest?
1: It's the game itself. Uh, you know, and, and listen, I, I used to imagine, I, I wish I was like 20 years old and trying to embark on a coaching career now because I had envisioned like spacing and raining down threes and overcoming all these, uh, huge and big, strong athletes that you'd have to go up against. When if you were smaller and a team didn't have a lot of athletes, you could balance the thing. So I had that that vision, but no one ever to like sort of demonstrate it for me. So we I couldn't quite get there. But now that it's taken hold, and we're now I guess what about four or five years into this, uh, and it's it's continually morphing. There there is something hollow uh, to the game. It, it does, I don't want to say it resembles a pickup game. It, although it does, we'll have multiple sessions in a row where it's just the you know quick shot after quick shot and the brick and whatever. Um, and and that's part of it, but I, I don't know. It's worth – I'm going to have to really kind of have a, some self-reflection because I, I haven't been able to completely, succinctly explain it, and maybe you guys can help. Uh, but there's something about the way the game is played now that doesn't capture my interest nearly as, what it, as the way it used to. Well,
2: I mean, Greg Popovich has said that he feels like, you know, to use the, the jump term, you know, it's a make-or-miss league. If you make threes on a given night – you're going to win, and if you miss, you're, you're not. And it was funny because when he put out that quote, like a week later, he set the record for best three-point field goal percentage in a game, his team went like 17 of 19 or something. But I, I definitely feel like there, obviously, there's an overemphasis on threes. The fact that Devontae Graham was on pace to be one of the, having one of the most prolific three-point shooting seasons in NBA history, certainly I think says a lot about about where the game is right now. Um, but I, at the same time, I, I, I love the idea that we don't know who who is going to be winning the title this year and that no one That's... can say for sure who they think is going to sure. win the championship. So while this regular season might be odd and, and maybe we're all adjusting to this post-Warriors, um, this post Warrior season, I, I think at the same time when we hit the playoffs, I think we, we may see as an exciting time as we've ever seen.
1: I got to put my OK Boomer hat on for a minute because... Um, here 's the thing the the pace is up so significantly over past now, I know in the seventies at some point it might even have been a little bit faster than it is now, but you know through the eighties and nineties the golden age of the n b a uh it 's much faster and I think what 's con- and also the usage rates of superstars is sort of exploding so' some mm-hmm. really interesting videos i just stumbled upon late in the you know the middle of the night the other night um talking about this, and i 've been sort of talking to a lot of trainers and coaches about this is that so here's what we're seeing. We're seeing guys, you know, 30 points a game is not nearly as special as it used to be. Triple doubles are almost, don't mean anything anymore, you know, because it, it, it seems easier to do it. Um, and, you know, it, so here's the interesting thing. So, like Giannis, for instance, he's a superstar. He's the best player in the Eastern Conference. I trolled, I guess. I didn't mean to, uh, to do that in my, my video on him last time where I called him one of the best players in the East. I don't know why I did that, but nonetheless, <laughs> here's the thing. You go through and watch him like in transition. He's sort of, you know, 60th percentile on synergy, which is, you know, average in transition. And here's a guy who's a superstar. You really shouldn't be, especially in, that, in the setting of open court. And you see him miss shots that are so bad. The misses are so bad, like hitting the rim underneath the rim or going over the rim and applying all over the place. Now, the makes are exhilarating and amazing. But I have to tell you, like, we never would have seen the superstars in the 80s take shots like that, that would yield such terrible misses. And so I, I, I don't want to say it's a, de- a skill deficit, but there's something about the way the superstars are uh, uh, act now and you have so much more um, control on the ball that it's like the, the, the natural outcropping of all these amazing stats is just almost a, just a, a byproduct that makes it, to me, less interesting.
0: How, how much, though, do you think is the, the demographic that we're in that we'd remember what the stars were like in the eighties and what we eighties and nineties and what we didn't know about them off the court versus what we do know about a lot of these guys off the court.
1: You know, that has to be a factor without question. If you, I, you didn't see Michael Jordan, then you might not. Cause by the way, like Michael Jordan would be doing whatever James Harden is doing easily, you know? Uh, but so, so I get that for sure. That's what they're growing up with. Um, but you know, the context is really important too. And certainly, I know I didn't get a chance to watch Bob Fousey play when I was live, but I studied that tape. You know, I've studied Wilt. I've studied, so I know what what happened back then and how they played. And, um, you know, at least with me, when you're in the weeds of like footwork and technique and, and different things and fundamentals, uh, there, there's a re- there's a fundamental deficit too there that, that kind of, it's been seeping into my videos a little bit, which is probably why I said that about Giannis, but it's saw uh, everybody, Russ, uh, you know, Harden, I have a hard time because he, I think he's, Supremely skilled, but you know we're seeing you know some of these guys coming up, and they're you know they're getting such amazing numbers. But like, and then the only question now is, is like, okay, great, he he needs to fix this, this, and this. How much better could he be then the guy's averaging thirty points, ten rebounds, ten assists, right? But in theory, he would be, and uh but that makes you just sound like the old head who's just complaining about you know uh getting off my lawn.
2: I, I look. I think a lot of that's fair. I, I talked to. Don McLean about this recently he's Impact 12's all-time leading scorer he was a most improved player in the NBA played in the NBA for a decade now he's the top workout guy pre-draft and Don said you know the players today way more athletic and bouncy on the whole but he said definitely they're not skilled more than they were 15 years ago he said no way uh they're more skilled now what he does train them on and what he works on are specific skills and that's in that part's interesting to me that you know, he gets guys to shoot the NBA three, no matter what their position is. And so you might not be working on certain post moves um, or ways that you're protecting the basketball or something, or you know, your, your jab series, for instance, but you're going to be working on your three point shot. And the fact that everybody shoots threes now, I think is I, that's probably the biggest thing that's, that's changed in the game. And so those fundamentals elsewhere probably have dropped off as the, the time has been spent shooting extra threes, but uh, Nick, what I, I really want to ask you about was your Tom Izzo back and forth, which obviously caught fire. You talked earlier on the podcast about the idea that there's a a uh, you studied like the psychology of of coaching. So for people that don't, that don't remember NCAA tournament, Tom Izzo rips into one of his players, and then why don't you take it from there as to as to how it involved you ultimately.
1: Okay, so this was, uh, the, the Michigan State was a second seed. They're playing a 15th seed in Bradley in the first round, and they were getting beat at halftime. And it was, you know, embarrassing. It wasn't a, you know, they were down 10 or whatever. But um, you knew that Tom Izzo, the style of coaching he is, he was going to detonate and destroy everybody in the locker room, throw stuff or whatever. And so they come out, and they actually play it really well. And they maybe even take the lead or cut the lead or make it tied or whatever, and the other team has to call a timeout. And here's the moment where you think, oh, my God, this is like, that's, we're on our way. Instead, he completely and utterly loses his shit all over Aaron Henry, the freshman uh, guard he has on his team. And it, it, it so pained me to see it because you can see Henry coming into the huddle so completely confused and utterly bewildered what is happening here. But it got worse because they sit down and then Izzo is seething. And they, he actually lunges at the player. They have to hold him back. I don't think he was going to hit him, but his fist was bald like he was – I don't know what he was going to do. Meanwhile, we go back to the game. Um, Aaron Henry throws the ball away twice in a row, like literally just threw at the other team. He was so uh, out of sorts emotionally. It took him you know, half an hour maybe to finally get you know, uh, back to equilibrium. He made a play at the end that helped them win barely, and they went on. Um, So I did that tweet. I I tweeted out the video of him going crazy in the huddle. And I said, I can't wait for this generation of coaches to go away, retire and go away. And that went crazy uh, all the way through uh, the world and back again. And everybody weighed in in on it. Scott Van Pelt had a whole monologue on it. LeBron talked about it. Uh, I had NFL players tweeting me directly, uh, baseball players. Uh, You know, the funniest thing is, and a lot of it was vitriol about how much of a pussy I am. And the other thing was, I think what stood out to me was how many uh, high school girl volleyball players call me pussy. It was really startling (laughs) to me. And I have to imagine, like, I know at my high school, (laughs) we had a a male coach for the girls' volleyball team. And I I have to wonder, like, maybe, like, to overcompensate, they're, like, extra tough on the girls, and the girls sort of absorb, uh, absorb all that kind of coaching. That all spurred this whole conversation, and I was trying to get people to understand that there are better ways to motivate your players. And like, positive coaching doesn't mean that it's all daisies and, and willows and you're just traipsing along the beach in slow-mo at each other. It's, uh, but but it, we, we understand what happens to the brain chemically when faced with that kind of anger and disgust. And if you're, and here's what I tell a lot of coaches when I talk to them or, or, or consult with them, whatever. You have to have a goal. What is your goal as a coach during the game? Well, the goal, I always ask that, it's a little bit vague, but your goal should be to get your players to play as well as they possibly can. And I just don't feel like enough coaches internalize that goal. Because if that really is the goal, then why would you ever put yourself in a situation where you're going to cause a player to not be able to handle the game emotionally? And even if you can say, oh, well, you know, I need that. I had players saying I need that kind of coaching to play well. Well, that's only because he's never had a coach or she's never had a coach that practiced emotional intelligence. And if they did, I have a feeling they'd play even better than they ever would have played. They just don't even know it. So it's a really interesting debate that we're slowly morphing into. I think I'm reaching a lot more of the younger coaches coming in. Certainly a coach who's 25, who takes over a a high school program, would never be allowed to behave that way anymore. And a lot of these guys are grandfathered in who are old enough. So it's going to change anyway. But um, the the point has always been that there are just better ways to get players to play better. And um, but but the pushback was incredible. And um, and and I'm still dealing with it now. I still have people tweeting to me, you know, yelling at me now.
2: Well, there's a lot to unpack right there. But just specifically as it pertains to that situation with Izzo and Henry. So based upon the knowledge that you have. What should Izzo have done?
1: Um, Izzo should have had him sit down and say, okay, well, here's the worst part about that. But, okay, he should have sat him down and said, hey, um, you know, that play that you made, you need to be, you know, not going to that screen. Right? And he could have said it forcefully. He could have been like, you know, with, with passion. You know, that, that's all. That's fine. You know, he just needs to be able to have a communication style that 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 makes the point. And, you know, you don't have a lot of time in a, in a huddle, so you can't be sitting there drawing up plays, all, all you know, for just him for five minutes. But you get in there, you have your two sentences and say, stop going on that screen. Or, you know, or I mean, listen, the best way to do it would be like, do you think that you can get around that screen? You know, give him the opportunity to say, yeah, coach, I will. OK, great. You know, then if you want to go negative, you can even say great, because if you don't, then you're sitting next to me. Right. You could do that's That's almost, you know, OK. But, but obviously, what he did it isn't going to necessarily make him do it. Now, here's the worst part about all that. I went through the tape, minute second by second, to look at what Izzo thought happened. And if anyone's ever stood at the bench level on a floor with players that size, at that size uh, gym, 94 by uh, 50, you can't really see a lot. It's not a great vantage point. And so what he thought he saw didn't happen. There was nothing related to what he ultimately said later uh, in another press <laughs> conference about what he thought was wrong. That didn't happen. There was one play where he got sw- uh, caught up on a switch and someone else covered for him and they contested the shot and it missed. Remember, they were coming in on a huddle off of like an eight-zero 0 run to get right back in this game. So That was really probably what, what made me so frustrated was after all of that it didn't even happen the way Izzo thought it did. and That's understandable again because that vantage point is going terrible. But if you don't understand that then you, and you think that you see things, then, of course, you might even blow up and go, you know, destroy players in the middle of a huddle for that. And, and that's another just completely uh, unrealized. He just has no self-reflection. And the fact that Izzo was so condescending and so um, uh, sarcastic with his answers after, uh, that, after the game going forward meant that he heard the criticism, but he certainly wasn't going to you know, reflect at all about maybe better uh, methods.
0: Did anyone from the school reach
1: out? Nobody. Oh, I I didn't hear anybody from Michigan State directly. Uh, No, I didn't. No, they they didn't seem to to, mind. And remember, the the, the answer is, oh, Israel's won all these games and all these titles and all that stuff. And I said, great. It's not because he detonates on his players. It's because he's, you know, (laughs) the next one's nose. And by the way, he's probably sent more players to the NBA than and everybody but 10 other you know, uh, universities in that time frame that he's been a coach. He gets great players. He gets elite athletes. You can't tell me they don't when they get to the NBA. So you know, that's what's really winning the games, not you, you know, grabbing a guy and, and displaying so much anger and disgust that you're afraid that they're gonna, you're going to hit a player.
0: But, but there's, a, there's an argument to be made that, and not necessarily in, in the Tom Izzo case, but just for coaches in general, that there are some coaches who are really good motivators and there are other coaches that aren't great communicators, but they're great X's and O's. So how do you, how do you balance the two if you're only good at one of them? Great question.
1: Okay. You know, doctors, when they're in medical school, they have these classes where they bring actors in to pretend they're sick. And they have to do the triage and you know, figure out what they learn, bedside manner. You know how they, do, they have that? Yeah, My I saw wife, that Seinfeld
0: doctor, episode, yeah.
1: To... Yeah, right. Exactly. So, well, okay. I'm going to give you the quickest version of the story I can. So uh, Tony Robbins, right, the motivational speaker, people make fun of him. I got to tell you, what he does is so untapped in the sports market right now, in the sports world, that it's crazy. So I met a guy who was a disciple of Tony Robbins. I said, give me something I can use as a coach while I was coaching so that I can use it, you know, communicate with my players. He goes, great. Pick a word or a phrase, and then during that time, like in the, in, you know, in the fall when you're practicing, you don't have games yet, you know, every like once a week. No, not a lot. Every once in a while, I'll just drop that word or phrase in when something really positive happens in the practice. So I used Gangnam Style that one year, and I was mispronouncing it. Remember that that you know that like, the Korean guy for whatever yes. that funny song, Welcome Gangnam Style. So I'm not pronouncing it right. They're laughing, and we did a you know high post entry, backdoor cut layup. I stopped the practice to be like that's Gangnam Style, right? So we do that for several weeks. We go to, we're on the road against our huge rival, which you have a home-and-home home series every year. We're down at halftime. I'm trying to talk to him. And all of a sudden, I turn and say, you know what we need? We need Gangnam Style. And they, I, their eyes opened wide. They smiled. We went out there and just destroyed them in the third quarter. And I thought I was cheating because I had just set that up the whole time, and I wasn't any kind of motivational technique. I mean, it was, but it was, like, predetermined from, from months ago. You can't tell me that Tony Robbins doesn't have 10 other versions of that and that we can't teach all these quote-unquote coaches who don't who aren't good communicators how to be better. Maybe Phil Jackson had some sort of innate, natural ability to communicate that way, and I'm sure he did those kind of things without maybe even knowing them, but we can teach that now, and we can get better play by these players by getting them in a positive frame of mind in the games and motivating them using those kind of techniques. Remember, in a practice, if you want to detonate, that's a different story because you're not having to make a free throw to win the game in front of twenty thousand fans, you know. Uh, it, it's the same kind of thing where people would say, "Well, I treat my son the same way. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna make sure he knows not to do that anymore." Well, I'm like, "Great." If you're in your house and you're gonna scream and yell and grab your kid and make him do that, he doesn't have to make a free throw to win the game right after you do that. So that's the that's the whole point. We're talking about game.
2: Oh, that is that is good. That is good. Noah tells me that his his catchphrase is, "Hey, sports fans." So
1: you know. I hear on ESPN they have a UN is what they're doing at some show now. Uh, really? They're using that phrase? Yeah, someone just told me. I mean, I don't I, listen. I'm too busy to watch ESPN, but there's some show out there, and they use it just like I use it. And uh, I'm kicking myself. I guess I should have. Uh, I
0: should have copyrighted it.
2: Yeah, you should have trademarked it. <laughs> yeah, because I don't.
0: I don't think you could trademark the "Hey Sports Fans," but the UN thing, you probably UN can. for sure. Oh yeah. Well, by the way, I. Well, you know where I got "Hey Sports Fans"? Nope.
1: Ah. I got it from one of the best movies of all time, um, The Great Santini, starring Robert Duvall,
0: because I grew
1: up on that. And And interestingly enough, there's a basketball scene where the great Santini's a Marine and he's, he is the Bobby Knight to his kid who's a good basketball player. And they have a couple different sequences of basketball in this game, in, in, the, in the movie. Uh, and then it turns out that Johnny Most, of all people, would do that same catchphrase. I found that out much later where I found a, you know, an intro to the All-Americans of that year or whatever, where he's like, hey, sports fan, Johnny, Johnny Most here. So I'm not – it's not original to me, but um, – so I actually prefer to have it as an homage to Johnny Most anyway. But uh, the U.N., I, you know how much grief I took? trying to establish that <laughs> as my tagline and now it's like people are, are are actually using it it's it, it actually it, it feels nice nick we got a
2: few quick hitters here for you you're coaching in the nba right now how would you summarize your your offensive philosophy
1: oh wow geez um it's a great question because i ask the nba coaches that all the time whenever i interact with them um my, my the philosophy obviously is uh, you know, three-point shooting, you know, but the key is, is good three-point shots. If I have an offense that can generate 50 good three-point shots, I'll take 50, three, 50 good three-point shots. But how do you do that? Well, you got to force help from one pass away, and that's generally a middle penetration. So my offensive uh, focus is going to be how do we get penetration in the middle and then kick outs for threes. That's one of the best ways to get a three. And the other thing would be post-ups. Believe it or not, the post-up is really important as a pass out to the three. So that's why the post shouldn't die is because we need that at least to be able to be, throw it down. There is an easier version of a penetration off the dribble. So I would emphasize that. I mean, dribble handoffs are really important as well. And that's what we see a lot. Most teams are doing now uh, out of like pistol or 21 action, which I don't want to get into the weeds, but so, the, but my focus and stress would be yes, middle penetration um, and, and uh, post-ups to generate good threes.
0: Right, so i stay with that. If you were a coach in the NBA, give me, one twitter coach that you absolutely would not have on your coaching staff can you see my blocked list or is that oh, okay that good out? all right all right i'll just
1: take a look at the block list <laughs> no i probably I don't you know probably you can, can't see that. That's can but funny. it's the top of the list right now um you know oh, but I, you know it's, here it is it's the kind of coach so i, I get into the, i get out there i'm progressive i will be provocative i oftentimes I'm, my new thing is stop diving on the ball for loose uh, on the ground for loose balls Mm-hmm. Train your players to run doubled over so they can stay on their feet. Now, of course, there's always a man, random times where you can get on the ground and it really does help. And they'll come yelling at me. But I'm always curious to the reaction by like coaches uh, fr- by that. Some coaches might be like, yeah, I don't know. I just like it or whatever. Other coaches would be like, oh, that's interesting. And then there are other coaches who are like, F you. The only way my team gets motivated is when like, they get on the ground for the ball. And those are the coaches whose minds are so closed and so dogmatic to like 1994 when everything that's in my mind solidified to like the old version of stuff that, um, that, that those are the guys I would never want on my staff. I would want guys who are like Nick Nurse. Here's the funny thing about Nick Nurse he's running zone off the wazoo, every version of it, which are the oldest you know, zones we've ever seen, but it's new because no one ever really wanted to do it in the NBA. So I, I love those are the kind of coaches who we're always trying to look at every facet of the game and wonder if it really is the best way to do it. Is a left-right really the best way to shoot a spot up? I've been playing around with a right-left with righties. And you know what? A lot of these guys who are really great shooters are all sort of rubbing their chin going, hmm, that's, this, there, there might be something to this. So that's the kind of guys I would want on my coaching staff.
0: All right, so let's, let's stay with that. Who are your If you need to win a playoff series, a seven-game playoff series, give me your top five coaches you'd want to do that.
1: Wow. Uh, well, Nick Nurse right now has to be the top. Um, I'm a little bit down on, um, on, the, on the normal answers, by the way. So, I, you know, so like, the pop, like Popovich, I'm a little bit sort of, you know, thinking that maybe I wouldn't put him on the top five now. Um, you know, Carlisle, here's, by the way, Carlisle called every single offensive play almost every single time for all these years. And he finally looked like he stopped doing that and letting Luca play. They now have an all-time great <laughs> offensive rating. Luca is going to be an MVP, you know, it, basically if he keeps this up, I would imagine. So uh, it shows you there, like, let, less control is important. So, like, so Carlisle wouldn't necessarily be in that, in that thing either. Steve Kerr would have to be there for sure, adjustments-wise. Uh, let's see, Nick Nurse, Steve Kerr, gosh, put him on the spot. Um, who are the other suspects we talk about? Um, gosh. Spolstra? Oh, you know what? Who? Spol- oh, Spolstra, yeah. I don't think I always gravitated to what Spolstra did, but I, what he's doing this year is really impressive, and, I, and I, I have to do a video. Everyone's been clamoring for one. So Spolstra, for sure, uh, gets it and understands that, understands the adjustments. And that's, that's really the key at that level, right, is, is the adjustments and the
0: matchups. Brad Stevens?
1: You know what? Brad Stevens needs to get to the finals to maintain okay. the status that he has. You know what I mean? At some point, the, you know, because he's exalted, I think he's great. But at some point, he's going to have to somehow put it all together. I know that there's a lot of factors involved with in getting to the finals and not. But, like, you know what I mean? He needs to at some point do it or else I think that that's going to be uh, – his legacy might be uh, questioned to some degree. But Stevens, Stevens, for sure, like the out-of-bounds plays he runs are amazing. That's also very key to the playoff series. So that's good. uh, uh I don't know. I, I get criticized, but I'll criticize some of the things he does. Uh, they help one pass away. They they like sink so deep into the lane to give up these shots that um, you know. But but I, I, it's hard for me to criticize that because their defense is number one and they're winning all these games. So uh, I, what do, I guess sometimes I have to shrug and be like, I guess I don't know anything because it's that that works for them. So <laughs> I, you know, I I don't gravitate to what he does necessarily. So
0: I don't know.
2: Nick, what's the what's the one video that's always been swirling around in the back of your mind that for whatever reason you don't necessarily know how to how to create it but it's something you've always wanted to maybe take a stab at
1: ah you know that's a great question all these questions are great by the way so that's um, what i'm talking about no big deal yeah no, I know. Listen, I, I, as a fellow podcaster, I always feel so inadequate when I go on your show because you you always are so much more researched and, and ask better questions. But nonetheless, Adam, I, I know I love you, so I want to make sure that that's clear. And, and if, if I'm being a biased homer, that's, that's, uh, that's I'm guilty. Okay. We're, we're good with um, that. Yeah. Good. So um, let's see here. The, the video I think I've always sort of wanted to do, but hey, I haven't been able to figure it out, and it could be a book or it could be a video like that I make and sort of market would be how to actually watch the games. What do I do? And it kind of came up earlier, you know, when you asked mm. me the first question. Or so, is, Well, how does that work? What do you do? What are you looking at? What is the whole process involved? And, you know, there's a lot of sausage, you know, that's being made behind the scenes that maybe I don't necessarily, you know, do you need to see me like stuttering through my voiceover and having like cut out all that stuff? Like, I don't think so, but um, Certainly, I think that um, a lot of coaches sometimes don't necessarily know. uh, It it gets overwhelming so quickly with so much stuff happening on the court. It's really difficult to figure out how to systematically analyze video. So I think that would be an interesting video uh, to some degree, uh, and but I just haven't been able to figure out like what are the visuals? is it me sitting at my desk with and then you can kind of over my shoulder, or is it like the other ver- uh, the flip that and sort of see me staring at the screen? And then we, you know what I mean? I, that, that's the one thing that's been really difficult for me to wrap my head around, compared to like uh, a, a video on on you know the the full court press that Nick Nurse ran. Like that's easy, right? I can grab those clips done. So this one's been harder for me to conceptualize, and you know one day though I, I would like to figure that out.
0: All right. Favorite superstar to watch? Least favorite superstar to watch?
1: Well, Russell Westbrook has got to be the least favorite, Um, although he's been playing better, apparently. But, um, you know, he's kind of like the poster child of the guy who's just, uh, you know, the the skill level is is too low. But he's breathtaking and impressive and and amazing, but also – just, you know, just drives me nuts as a coach. So he's probably the And I don't think it's a secret. Everyone knows. and They, they call me a hater. Now, the, the most it's fun, I mean, it would have been Steph because I, that's, I, I'm the underdog guy. I love to gravitate toward the little guys who are now overcoming uh, any kind of physical limitations with supreme skill. And those are now. But then again, Steph, in the last, you know, year or two, you know, it's changed. She's become a little bit more refined, a little bit more efficient, I feel like. So we're not getting just the YOLO stuff that we used to see that really just knocked you off your chair um, from him, which is, you know, he's, he's getting older. So, you know, gosh, who, who are the other superstars these days? Like, so I, I wouldn't say, like, Joel Indeed, no. Um, Giannis, no. Who am I missing? I, I, like, Hard. I think Luca. Luca would probably be the guy mm-hmm. right now because he's fun. He throws fun passes. Him and Trey Young, you know, Trey yes. Young nutmegs the guy every game. I, in fact, I got to ask him. I'm like, you practice that? He doesn't, which is crazy. To me, I feel like you need to practice that so you know how to throw it between the guy's legs and get it again. Um, but, uh, you know, the so Trey Young's not a superstar, but um, I just I get enthralled by just seeing a supreme skill. And then if you're a small guy, uh, then, then that just gets me really excited.
2: I'm about to ask you our, our ending question, but just you just made me think of something, Nick. Who, who was your guy that you grew up watching
1: and wanting to emulate? When you were a kid? Oh, well, easy. That's, well, I grew up in Chicago, so that's Michael oh, Jordan. Okay. And I grew up, we had season tickets to the Bulls from his third year on. So I was lucky to just go and watch those games. Now, I should have been watching like John Paxton, right? That's who I should have been emulating. But I can remember, um, you know, learning how to hang in the air, my pull up jump shots from, you know, from the mid range, just like Michael would do, and then release high. And I can remember, like, you know, in high school or maybe, maybe into college, like going to the park. And doing those shots and remember people like kind of like, like whoa, because it looked, you know, not that it looked like Michael, but it had that rhythm to it. And it was like, I learned that in my, in my living room with a, you know, a, uh, one of those plastic balls, like could just about palm, you know, like he could. And um, so I kind of was able to, to do muscle memory and train my body to move in my living room shooting on the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the doorway, the, uh, you know, if you got it at a 45 degree angle on the molding, it would bounce back. And that's, that's like, that was a, a, a made basket. And who knew that I was training my, my own jump shot to get to that 45 degree angle too, which is sort of the optimal, you know, degree you want, kind of. So uh, but Michael Jordan, without question, because, you know, and also he played as hard as he could on both ends of the floor, which, you know, uh, was how it should be game, how, how, how it should be played. There's
2: no question that if someone can drum up that uh, video of you in the park and having <laughs> someone in the background saying, look, it's kind of like Michael Jordan, uh, that video is <laughs> getting 250,000 views. Take, oh, yeah, I wish. Yeah, So last question here, since this is the Rejecting the Screen podcast, we always ask guess um any player that you've ever watched coached what have you seen other than mj who are you choosing game seven uh critical situation to reject the screen go iso for a bucket
1: oh my goodness gracious um yeah because you know you want you could say harden but harden it hasn't quite done it in the playoffs uh to the degree uh that other guys have done it i mean i guess you gotta go you gotta go kd when he's before his achilles right it's a good answer it's a good answer right that, I, you for know, sure. I, I don't think i can think of anybody else you know because i like the little guy but geez <laughs> talk about unfair um you know he can do everything from everywhere and um you know right now yeah that's who i would I and mean, he's proven it right uh, and over a couple different finals, so that's that's the guy you have to go with if, we, if we're
0: not limiting it to you know, uh, post injury. All right, well, he's Coach Nick, B ball breakdown on YouTube, B ball breakdown on Twitter, and also we didn't talk politics, but he's doing it. The muckrake podcast, you can get his political takes as well. Coach Nick, we appreciate it. Happy holidays! Thank you, you guys too, appreciate it. Yeah, I remember meeting. Coach Nick, years ago to the finals, I believe it was in Miami, he came up to me, introduced himself, and I had I had been a fan of what he'd been doing, and just like when you say you're a fan of what someone's doing, it's not like you agree with everything, I just, mm-hmm. I really appreciated his work ethic, I appreciated his hustle, I appreciated the way that he looked at the game, and I appreciated the way that I could learn from what he was doing, and you can tell that the passion is there, but I am a bit concerned, Adam, about how he said that. There's, there's, there is just something missing that, that he's losing his focus during these games that he's not as interested as he should be.
2: If he's worried about it, then, then you know what? We should be worried for the reason that I've known Nick for quite some time. And almost every time when I speak to him in the conversation, it pops up. I said, how, how are you able to do this with kids and, and a wife and, you know, happy marriage, all that stuff. I, Because of the time it takes to watch the games and then invest time in synergy stats and looking at, you know, researching historical players and then do your voiceover. I I know the work, as you talk about, that goes into it. And so if it's not a passion project, then you can forget it. It won't mean anything. I mean, he, he touched on that. So if he doesn't love the league and where it's at right now. Um, then, you know, maybe it's some foreshadowing that we should be worried and and uh, hopefully, you know, the people will recognize maybe we do need to investigate what's going on and and maybe there is more to ratings being down than we've surmised before, but maybe
0: not. Yeah, but I also do think it's still a lot about the injuries. Like he's watching the lake the Laker Nugget game the other night and there's no LeBron. Yeah. All right. Well yeah, there's there's no LeBron. It's a little bit more difficult to watch.
2: And and like I said. I think it's also taken us some time to adjust as to who's good. And there's no David and Goliath stories going throughout the year. And when we hit the
0: playoffs, I think we'll all be singing a different tune. I really believe that for sure. All right. So again, on YouTube, he's one of the original YouTube influencers. He's he's unboxing the league, not just unboxing LOL dolls. He's unboxing the (laughs) league. That's Coach Nick, B-Ball Breakdown. He's got nearly a million YouTube subscribers. So become one of them. Also, you can follow him on Twitter there. Also, you can follow Adam on Twitter at Naismith Lives. I'm at Noah Kozlov, C-O-S-L-O-V. Make sure you share this episode with anybody who you think might learn something. That's all we ask. Just share it. We hope you've enjoyed the holidays. You can also go back and listen to the other going ISO editions of Rejecting the Screen. Adam and I are together on Tuesdays, about 25, 30 minutes. We talk hoops, a little bit of life. And then on Thursdays, going ISO long form with anybody and everybody who has touched the league in some capacity from Peter Vesey to Howard Beck, Richard Jefferson, Sam Mitchell, Doug Gottlieb, and coach Nick, among others. Adam, I appreciate it, pal. Thank you. You are the
2: best.